0: So I'm sure that you've all seen kids playing with building blocks, right? You've all watched this happen and you have, uh, you have blocks. You might have uh, the plastic ones, Legos, or you might have blocks like this. And when kids work together to build something, they can often build something that is uh, pretty creative, can't they? They can put something together that is uh, pretty neat and one of the things that I used to like to do with my boys was we would just see how high the tower could get and this one is not going to get very high, I can tell you right now by how I'm building it, but when when kids work together to do that, they can build something pretty cool. But what happens when they both want the same piece or what happens when they have different visions of what that building should look like? Often, this is what happens. One of them goes like that, right? One of them says, if you won't give me that piece, here's what I'm going to do. If one of you won't let me have what I want, then this is all that I'm going to get. I remember when I was, when I was a young man, uh, my brother and I, when I was probably uh, middle school, we kind of got in the age where we liked to play board games. And I was a couple years older than him, and so I always one. And I, remembered one of, I remember one of my pet peeves was um, I was probably being a little smug about winning, I'll be honest, but I, I hated it when I would be about to win a game and he would flip the board over. Anybody ever had that experience where somebody flipped the board over and said, fine, if I can't have it my way, if I can't win, then I'm not playing at all. I wonder if it ever happens like this in church too, that we don't quite get our way, that it doesn't happen like we want it to, and so we just push the tower over and we leave a path, a mess, behind us. When there are personal disagreements between people and they're not handled well, when there are disagreements about how something should be done, who should do it, what it should look like, when there are conflicting opinions and desires and those things aren't submitted to the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we end up destroying rather than building and we walk away from cooperation and fellowship that God wants us to have and that he intends to build up his kingdom and his church and in our studies of first Corinthians we've already seen that the church in Corinth the city of Corinth it was divided particularly it was divided over leadership influences and leadership styles and personalities some claimed that Paul was their leader Others that their leader was a younger preacher named Apollos. And others that the Apostle Peter was their leader. These leaders weren't in competition with one another. They weren't opposed to each other. But people in the church were using them to form factions and associations that they hoped would lead to some kind of prominence in their church community or some kind of power or influence. And they were in danger of destroying the church. Not that they could destroy the church big C, as in what God is doing in people all over the world and communities spread all over, but in the church in Corinth, they were in danger of destroying that local church through their division. So he continues to warn them about divisions in the church and what will happen if those divisions continue. They were blinded by their own pride, and Paul begins to shine the light of truth into their circumstances in the hope that they would see and they'd stop heading down this path toward destruction. And the conditions that were going to lead the Corinthians toward destruction in their church and away from growth are the same that can lead any church away from growth and toward destruction, including this one. You can either destroy God's church, or you can help build God's church, and there are four conditions that Paul gives for this growth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now these aren't the only conditions for growth, but there are four that he pointed out were being violated in the community, in the church, in Corinth, and he wanted them to stop doing the destructive things that they were doing so that they could actually build the church up and build the people of the church. You can help build God's church rather than destroying it. And the first condition of helping to build God's church instead of destroying it is that you have to turn away from selfish motives. First Corinthians chapter one, or First Corinthians chapter three, verses one through four, say this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now here's the phenomenon that we're gonna see throughout 1 Corinthians and that lingers in much of the church today. People, especially people in the church at least, they want to be thought of as spiritual. They want others to look up to them as some kind of mature person, as a spiritual person. And so sometimes there's a bit of a competition to see who is a bit more spiritual than others, who can use the more spiritual words, can claim the most spiritual experience, can connect themselves to the most spiritual leaders or those who are perceived to be more spiritual anyway. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, which we talked about last week, Paul affirmed that Christians have the Spirit of Christ. Even the Christians in Corinth had the Spirit of Christ. To be a Christian means that you have God's Spirit living in you. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So to be a Christian is by definition to have the Spirit of Christ. Paul was not saying that these believers in Corinth didn't have the Spirit. He was saying something that maybe it's it's even more, um, more frightful or more convicting. He was saying that even though they did have the Spirit of God living in them, they weren't acting like it. And so he couldn't address them as truly spiritual people. He should have been able to. He told them in the last chapter, you have the mind of Christ available to you. And yet he says, I have to feed you with milk. We have to keep going over the same silly stuff like stop your envy, stop your jealousy, stop your strife because you've not yet grown into the mind of Christ. They thought they were mature, but they were infants, spiritually speaking. Even though they had the spirit, they were thinking merely human thoughts. Paul wasn't here setting up classes of Christians, but he was pointing out that they weren't living up to what God had given them. They weren't actually walking in the Spirit and using the mind of Christ. He fed them with milk when they first believed. He preached to them the gospel, told them to give up their, their rivalries and their dissension, and yet they hadn't. And so his only recourse was to keep feeding people who had had long enough to mature in Christ to keep feeding them milk like a baby from a bottle so that they could maybe grow up, but they weren't yet ready for the mature food that Paul wanted to bring. And the sign of their immaturity was clear. It was their jealousy and their strife. These were some of the very things that they thought made them mature, They thought that one group was more mature than another because they'd hitched their wagon to this leader or because they had these spiritual gifts. And so the very thing that they thought made them more mature, the thing that they said, well, we're more mature than you because we like this leader, that was the thing that actually was the sign, the evidence that they were immature. And even though they had the spirit, they were acting like fleshly people. They were acting like they were motivated and moved only by human drives and desires. Flesh doesn't mean that the material stuff that you're made out of is bad or or evil or something like that. It's not. The Bible says over and over again that God created you and that He made the world and He intended it for good. What flesh means is you trying to live without God. Flesh means you acting as if God has no say in your life. But the only thing that drives you is the desires that come internally from within you, from your own body or your own. Soul, even that they have selfish motives and selfish desires. That's what Paul means by flesh. He's saying, You have the Spirit, you have the mind of Christ, and yet you are still acting like this. And their jealousy and strife were the evidence that they were acting as if the Spirit didn't actually live among them, when in fact, He did. Their jealousy and strife were tied to those divisions over their leaders and to their worldly preferences and their pride. And Paul's point in all of this is not that Christians can go indefinitely living a carnal life or being a carnal Christian. He's not saying that there are two classes of Christians. He's not saying that, yeah, there are the spiritual Christians, but then, you know, you can be okay living in the flesh and still have the Spirit. No, his warning in this passage is this, that if you are a believer in Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you cannot keep walking according to the flesh or you will perish, you will die, you will be judged in the flesh. And Paul makes that very clear in other passages, in other letters, where he says that if you continue to walk in the flesh, you will die. And so his argument isn't it's no big deal, his argument is it is a very big deal, and it's a solemn warning to those who claim to be spiritual and yet are still acting in the flesh. You cannot continue to live in the flesh. And this is a very deceiving place to be. And so we have to measure, uh, we have to use the measure that Paul gives to us, jealousy and strife. Or We might be able to broaden that to purely selfish or human motives. And the interesting thing was that the Corinthians appear to have been experiencing spiritual gifts from God's Holy Spirit. At the same time, we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 that they experienced spiritual gifts in their services and in their community at the same time that they were living this way. But those gifts were being used contentiously. And this provides a wake-up call for people who consider themselves spiritual. Because even if you're experiencing manifestations of the Spirit in your life, or even if we as a community experience manifestations of God's Holy Spirit as He acts in us and among us, that does not necessarily mean that we're walking in the Spirit or living according to the Spirit. Just as a person might read and interpret the scripture correctly and yet turn and forget what it says and not apply it in their lives, so an individual or a community may experience manifestations of God's Holy Spirit designed to exhort, designed to encourage, designed to correct, and yet turn away from the explicit instructions given by the Spirit and continue to act on their own desires. Sitting in church. Raising your hands, praying with fervor, using spiritual words, and otherwise trying to project spirituality. Those things aren't bad, but they're also not necessarily evidence of spiritual maturity. And if your life is also, at the same time, marked by jealousy, if you're trying to appear more spiritual than others, if you're gossiping and you're complaining and you're helping to feed into divisions rather than into building up the body of Christ, if your motive for service in God's church is attention, or if you're simply looking for a place to gain some influence to be a big fish in a small pond, you're not walking in the spirit, you're walking in the flesh. Even if the Holy Spirit sometimes works through you to help others. You need to repent and turn away from that selfish motivation. Humble yourself and realize that your claims to spirituality are no more than posturing that we see happening in places like business and in politics. Attempts to get in good with the right people so that you can feel like you've attained something that others have not attained. And the goal in all of this is not self-deprecation. The goal is correct evaluation. The Corinthians were spiritual people because God had made them people of his Holy Spirit when they believed on Jesus. But they were acting fleshly. Again, the evidence was how they were involved in jealousy and strife. And if you're a believer in Jesus, the fact is, You too are a spiritual person, not based on what you've done, not based on your maturity or how you project, not based on what spiritual words you know. You're a spiritual person based on the grace of God that when you called out in faith on Jesus, he put his Holy Spirit in you. That's what makes a person a spiritual person. But you may need to evaluate that even though perhaps the Holy Spirit lives in you by faith, You're still acting according to the flesh. The measure is not how many spiritual sayings you know or if you can find the Bible passage faster than the person next to you in the pew or something like that. The indicators that you're acting in the flesh are when you adopt the values and the measures of the world and you bring them into your relationships and into your church and it results in jealousy, and strife, and backbiting, and division, and bitterness, and offense. And if those things are present in your life and you're feeding them, don't think yourself a spiritual person. I mean, you are in the basic sense that the Spirit of God lives in you if you put your faith in Christ. But humble yourself and realize I'm not more spiritual because I feel like I've got insider information or wisdom I can share with somebody else, wisdom or prayer requests, which are sometimes other monikers for gossip, or because I've brought some kind of confusion or division because I think that my way is superior to a brother or sister's in Christ. That is not a mark of maturity. That's a mark of fleshly living in a Christian that needs to be rooted out and put to death so that God can build his church among us. Let's be people that because God has put his spirit in us, we walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. Second source or, or place that Paul points to us if, if we want to help build the church is that you must recognize the source of growth. If we want to contribute to the growth of the, of the church, of the people of God, then we have to recognize where that growth comes from. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, five to nine. It says, what then is Apollos? Remember, he's the young preacher who was preaching in Corinth, and some people thought he was better than Paul. That wasn't a division between Apollos and Paul, but between people who watched him. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Ministers are servants. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, deacons, board members, leaders in the church, these are servants. They are not positions to gain personal influence They're not positions to gain a platform. The Corinthians set leaders on a pedestal and then they tried to attach themselves to those leaders in the hopes that their own reputation would be pulled up along with them. If you aspire to leadership in the church, that is a good thing. But leaders in the church are also servants of the church. It's not a gig for you to pursue power. You don't pursue leadership merely to implement your own ideas. You pursue leadership based on a call of God, a conviction that he has gifted you, a desire to glorify him, and a desire to serve other people as well. And leaders have a a variety of gifts and roles. Paul planted he founded the church in Corinth. Apollos watered. He preached and helped strengthen and build up the church in Corinth. Part of Paul's purpose here was to help the Corinthians see that God had different purposes for different leaders. And if you recognize the difference between two leaders, perhaps that's not a cause for criticism, but for giving thanks concerning how God is uniquely providing for the community of believers at a particular stage in its development. Because leaders, if they're truly submitted to the Lord, have the same goal. Notice Paul says, he who plants and he who waters are one. Their goal is similarly to help the church grow into what God intends, but God gives the growth. This is the ego check for any leader in the church. It's a check on my ego. It's a check on any lay leader's ego. It's a check on pastoral egos. It's because what we do, we can't take credit for. Because we didn't do it. God did it. God does. Whatever growth there is, it goes to him. If we see growth numerically, spiritually, or in any other way, the credit belongs to God. It may not be time to go look for a book deal or develop a model that you can sell to other churches, but to give thanks to God that he has blessed what has been done because it's his work and it's his growth. And this is a check on the ambitions of followers as well. God uses people, absolutely, but he gets the glory. And leaders should have accountability and work hard, but the quick fixes that the world uses, like, get a new CEO or hire a new coach quick, we didn't have a winning season. That's not the way of God's kingdom. Rather than looking to leaders to bring growth personally or in the community of believers, we should ask God for growth because if growth comes merely through good ideas or from leadership skill, then that growth will be built on good ideas and leadership skill and will not be based on the cross of Jesus Christ like we talked about last week. It might be based on personality or false motivation, but the growth we want in the church is growth of people whose lives are transformed as they learn to glorify God because Jesus has saved them. Leaders belong to God. They don't belong to the church. They are fellow workers. They work for the same goal, and they belong to God. That's what Paul says. The church belongs to God as well. The church is God's field, his building, God did not provide ministers and leaders in the church in order to scratch backs, didn't do it to tickle ears, but to be caretakers and vessels through whom he brings growth. So if you're a leader in ministry, give God glory for the ways that he uses you. If you're a follower, give God glory for the leadership he provides. But don't apply celebrity culture to the church. Ministers are servants Recognizing where growth comes from should also lead us to this application. It should call us to prayer. Sometimes changes in leadership are necessary, and God brings those. God does use various leaders, and he uses them at different times. But the source of growth, no matter who the leader is, is not the leader, but is God, which should lead us to rely on him. Prayer needs to be a replacement for comparison and complaint and offense and strife and jealousy so that we're looking to God for growth and not to leaders. Because sometimes what our strife and jealousy actually reveals is that we're trusting leaders to bring growth, we're not actually trusting God to bring growth. We think that if they just did it like we preferred or if they just did it like we used to do it, then we would grow. And that's a trust in a leader, and not necessarily a trust in God. Don't apply political culture to the church. Ministers are God's servants, not the church's servants. And they will not ultimately give an account to you, but they give an account to God, which is a much more serious thing that we'll talk about in a moment. And that leads to Paul's next condition for building up the church. And it's that you have to remember what's at stake. Remember what's at stake. Look at verses 10 to 17. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul switches metaphors here. He stops talking about crops, and he he switches to talking about building the temple of God. And as we saw last week, when we learned to measure our lives by the cross, Paul laid a foundation for the church, and that foundation was Christ and him crucified. He did that by God's grace. And his warning in these verses is that we should take care how we build upon that foundation that has been laid, Jesus Christ. How many of you remember group projects in school or in college? Anybody remember group projects? I hated group projects. I hated them because I was an overachiever and I wanted my project to be done well. And I knew, because I'd heard other people say it out loud, I don't know if they knew I was listening or they just didn't care, but I knew that people would take advantage of that. I knew that they thought that if they got partnered with the right group of people, that they could just slough off while others did the work. And so I hated the idea that I would work hard to build a foundation and then I had to hand it over to include someone else's work on top of it that was probably gonna knock the whole thing down and I would be graded and judged based on what they did. Thankfully, Paul says that each person who builds will be judged for their own work. But that doesn't mean that our work on God's church doesn't affect other people. And in these verses, Paul appears to have moved from talking about recognized leaders like himself and Apollos to the part that any of us play in building up the church as we interact with others and we serve and we lead And he tells us this, your work can either be lasting or temporary. Some build with great skill and prayerfully and carefully help to build up God's church. Others build recklessly, allowing zeal or selfishness or their own motives to get ahead of their wisdom. Some build very little, thinking the church is mostly about taking and not about giving. And you may excuse your shoddy work now, and you may even deceive yourself about the kind of work you're doing, but Paul says that the day is coming, and he means judgment day, and it will reveal what kind of work you've done. Lasting work will bring fruit into the eternal kingdom of God, to our joy, our delight, and to God's glory. But other work based on wrong motives, foolishness, or selfishness, it'll be like wood, hay, and straw that doesn't survive the judgment of fire. It'll be burned up. And this kind of bad workmanship, Paul says, it doesn't threaten the loss of salvation. He says, they'll they'll still be saved, yet as those who pass through the fire, maybe the loss will be a realization that you did so little with what God gave you. It counted for very little eternally. You didn't lay up treasure in heaven, you laid it up on earth and now that treasure is gone. But the question it calls us to ask is this, are you building carefully? And the first part of that question is just this, are you building? Are you involved in helping to build the church to encourage believers to prepare and to propel people into the mission of God? He calls us together as a body of Christ so that we can all participate. He gives gifts to each one individually so that the church might be built up and we'll see that clearly in the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. But the first question you should ask yourself is just this, are you building? Have you gotten involved? Or have you found a place to serve? Are you encouraging? Are you using the gifts the Holy Spirit has given you to build up his kingdom? Are you witnessing to other people in your neighborhood or at work or or your friends, so that the gifts God has given you and the opportunities that he's given you are being fruitful in your life? Are you helping to build the church? And the next question would just be this, how are you building? Are your motives pure? Are you more concerned about what God thinks than what others think? Is your work bringing unity? Does it prove to bring encouragement and growth? Are you willing to serve or does it have to be your way or I'm not playing? And if that's the way you're building, you might think is this wood, hay, straw or will these things survive the day? There's a kind of work that does result in something worse though, Paul says. There's a kind of work that actually does result in destruction. The scripture says and Paul says here that the church is God's temple and Paul is gonna later talk about how each one of us in our bodies is a temple of the Holy Spirit that we house the presence of God but here he's not talking individually. He doesn't mean each one of us individually is the temple of God. He means together as the church we are the temple of God and since the church is the temple of God he says this, this is really serious. Whoever destroys it will be destroyed. That's a serious warning. To sin against the spiritual unity of the church is to sin against God himself. To cause the destruction of the church, and he means the local church here. He doesn't mean like you could cause the destruction of God's church around the world. No one can do that. The gates of hell will not prevail. But local churches do get destroyed by division and strife and enmity, and Paul says that's a kind of work that if you do that kind of work you will be destroyed because you've destroyed God's temple. This is a similar warning to the one Jesus issued when he said, "Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea." Mark 9:42. If a person works to stir up strife and jealousy, cause division, causes people to lose their faith, diverts attention from the real mission of the church, that person is in grave risk of God's judgment. And the point that we need to remember in all of this is what's at stake because sometimes we treat the church as if what's at stake is our preferences about personalities or the colors that we like or the styles that we like or which songs we prefer. We treat it as if what is at stake, the biggest, the biggest thing that's at stake is if I like it. But Paul says what's at stake is people's souls and the ability of the local body of believers to pursue the mission of God undistracted from worldly things. And so as we work to build the church, we should constantly be examining our motives. And when I say we work, I mean we. I don't mean pastors, I mean us together, the body of believers. We should be examining, Lord, am I building in such a way that I recognize what's at stake, that this is important, that it's not a light thing, but it is an eternally significant thing. And this shouldn't discourage us from building God's church, it should just cause us to be prayerful and humble and careful about how we build. How are you building? Are you building? Is your motive to glorify God or is it your own glory? And as you build, are you remembering what's at stake? Eternal life for many is at stake in the building of God's church. To help build the church, you can turn away from selfish motives, recognizes that, recognizing that God is the source of our growth, and remembering that something of eternal value is at stake. And the final condition we see in the passage for the building of the church is that we have to reject God, or we have to reject worldly wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 to 23, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Self-deceit in matters of the church is always a danger. Paul's direction in verse 18, don't deceive yourselves, is similar to our saying uh, that, that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. He says that if anyone thinks himself wise in this world, let him become a fool. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. But this pertains particularly to wisdom of this world. The Corinthians were using worldly evaluations for preaching and for leaders and for power, and we have to be careful that we're not using the wisdom of the world in our church. Our goals are not the same as the world, and so the means of achieving those goals are not the same. Our goals are not just to get bigger, to have more people, to be richer. We want to grow, but we desire for growth to come for the glory of God and our desire for growth can't be untethered from our desire to see people's lives transformed by the gospel. Your goal can't be to be a big fish in a small pond. We have to be prayerful and led by the spirit in how we seek to accomplish God's purposes. And through their divisions over leadership, the Corinthians were missing out on a much bigger picture. They were boasting in people like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And Paul says this, and it's pretty astounding. He tells them, all things are yours. That's a pretty big statement. Both Paul and Apollos had been given to the church for its growth, and there there was no need for division. They both were there to build up the church. And we can so easily sometimes get caught up in human envy and rivalry that we forget that God is working through a multitude of people and he works in different ways at different times through different gifts. God gives people and gifts that the church needs and it would be foolish not to receive those gifts as God's grace, but to reject them because we like someone else better. God has given this church over the years some great gifts, in terms of leadership, lay leadership, pastoral leadership. Many memories in this church go back to Pastor Berkey, who was a fantastic leader, who was a man of God. I've had the privilege of speaking with him and he's prayed for me on the phone several times. In fact, just after I became pastor, he sent me this. This is vintage, all right? This is pre edition, Bethany. For those of you who are younger, this is OG, okay? and it says, this is a softball jacket, pastor, and he sent this to me. Pastor Berkey was a fantastic pastor. From what I've read, and from what I've talked to him about, and from what I've talked to others about, Pastor Berkey was wonderful. He did a fantastic job and he expressed a level of leadership that was astounding. He was really good. And then God gave different gifts to this church in in terms of of Pastor Cope or Pastor Ryan who helped the church through a rocky time or Pastor Adams who had a love for missions and helped build up missions and and who also loved God's presence. Fantastic gifts to the church. He's given gifts to the church in terms of families over the years who have been faithful in serving God, families, some of whom are still among us like Di Lorenzo or flowers or or Murray's, and, and he's given fantastic leadership in this church. But God has also given new things for new seasons. And God gives these things to us, and he says, all these gifts are yours. It's not that you play one off the other. You say, that was better than this. That time was better than this time. That's not the point. The point is, all things are yours, And if what we do is we play one period of time off of another period of time, one set of gifts off of another set, and we compare and we contrast and we make our preferences and our choices and we wish we could go back or we wish we could do this different or that different, then what we're doing is we're refusing sometimes to receive the gifts that God has given for a particular season so that the church can be built up and can grow in the period which God has it right now. And I wanna encourage us as a church all things are yours. And if what we do is we say, I wish it was this way, I wish it was that way, then we might miss the way that God wishes it was. And we need to have humble hearts to submit to what God wants to do in our lives. Strife and jealousy that lead to factions and divisions are not based, uh, are often rather based on our own fears that there's not going to be enough for everybody or that it won't be done my way. And this is the wisdom of the world. I have to get what's mine before somebody else gets to it and takes it. There's always a winner, there's always a loser, but that is not the economy of God. The Apostle Paul says, all things are yours. The Corinthians were satisfied with so little when God offered them so much. They couldn't see what God offered because they were too caught up in the division based on their worldly wisdom. I wonder if we ever share their attitude. Do we miss the varied gifts that God wants to give because we're attempting to apply the world's wisdom to the church or we're too concerned about protecting our self interests? Perhaps we can receive the various gifts that God gives in various seasons and rejoice in all of them without playing them off one against the other. God gives his church everything that's necessary for growth. And to be built on the foundation of Christ, he supplies spiritual gifts and ministries as well as leaders and ministers to care for the church and to make sure that it's built up. The Corinthians had an abundance of God's gifts to help their church thrive, but it wasn't thriving because they were acting in spite of the fact that the Holy Spirit had come to live among them. They were still acting like fleshly people even though they had the Spirit. They were operating as if they had to pick one against another when God had used multiple to help them to grow. What's getting in the way of our growth as a church I'm not talking about models. I'm not talking about methods of church growth. I'm talking about the inner workings of a church that help it thrive, that help it grow spiritually as well as grow in its mission. Are we ever held back by worldly motives and worldly wisdom that produces strife and jealousy? How can you help to build God's church, this church, Bethany, in Agawam, Massachusetts, How can you help to build it up so that it accomplishes God's mission that he left for his church all over the world? It won't be that any one of us gets our way all the time. It won't be because you find the perfect leader that you can hitch your wagon to. It will start when we turn away from selfish motives, recognize that God is the only source of growth and seek him for it, remembering what's at stake and taking our part in building the church seriously, rejecting the wisdom of this world and instead receiving the wisdom of God's varied gifts that he gives to the body of Christ. The foundation of that church is Jesus. And today, we've talked a lot about the church and how it's built up, but you have to remember that at the base of all of that, and we sang about it earlier, is Jesus. He's the name above every name. He's also the foundation upon which the church is built, and he's the foundation upon which life is to be built. And perhaps you've come today and you've really got no part in the church because you don't even really have a relationship with God through Jesus. Maybe you've been thinking about it, seeking it. Maybe you felt some pressure from somebody else to check it out. Maybe you've been invited. Perhaps someone dragged you to church this morning. Perhaps you've been sensing some kind of inner push or tug to think about God or spiritual things or the circumstances of this world have caused you to say, maybe I need to examine what life is about. And today, what I would say to you is just this, that whatever you choose to build your life on If it's not Jesus, it's like building your life on sand. It'll crumble. Your bank account will crumble. Politics will crumble. World circumstances will crumble. Your ability to hold your family together will crumble. Your job can be taken away. Your health can be lost. All these things that people try to build themselves up in, they will crumble. But God has given a firm foundation in Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to die for your sin because you'd strayed from him. In fact, the scripture says that we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. And because we were created to be in a relationship with God, God, when we sin and we reject God, we run from him, we push him away in our lives, what that does is it leads us to death. It leads us to a place where we're trying to build our walls on a foundation that can't support them. We want a solid family. We want a solid identity. We want, to, we want to know peace in our lives, and we're trying to build that somehow, and we start to see cracks, and it crumbles. But God sent Jesus to rebuild that foundation, and it's not a foundation that you work hard on. It's a foundation of faith. The scripture says this, that when you were still stuck in your sin, God sent Jesus to die for you, and that's how he showed his love for you. And so You're in a place where you're recognizing the foundations have fallen, my house is crumbling, the the walls of life are tumbling. The reason is because you built your life on something other than Jesus, but there is a foundation offered to you today that is firm, is solid, is unshakable, and you don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you don't buy it, you don't get a, a, a lease to build on it. You simply believe what God has done by faith. It's not by your work, it's by faith, so that you can't boast, you can't say, I did this, I saved myself. So today, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, don't begin to think, oh, I'll clean my life up first. I'll make it look a little better. i got to repair the the holes in the wall. i got to patch the cracks. No, that's not going to happen. What you have to do is simply trust Jesus and make him the foundation on which you build your life. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for just a moment. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, and today you know you need that, you know that your house is crumbling, you know that you're living in your sin, lost and separated from God, then if you'll put your faith in Jesus today, he will forgive your sin, he will cleanse you, and he will save you. If you don't have that relationship, I want to ask you if you just indicate that you want to to begin to build on Jesus today. You wanna make him the foundation by faith. Would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody like that? You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You've not expressed your faith, your trust in him, but you wanna express that today. Thank you. Is there anybody else? You don't have that relationship. You're not building on that firm foundation, but you wanna begin that today, not through your work, not through your good works, but through what Jesus has done for you. Is there anybody like that? Anybody else? If you're, if you're watching through the service online, just text the word hope to 413-300-6061. We'll respond to that. Anybody else? We're going to pray this prayer, and as I pray, if you raise your hand, you put your trust in Jesus as I pray, and believe him to minister in your life and to save you today. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you, and I believe by faith that Jesus died for me. I confess that I've sinned against you and I've run from your purposes, I've run from your ways, and from your presence, but today I confess that I need you. I ask that you would forgive my past, that you would make me whole, and I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. And so today I'm asking you to give me new life, life that's not founded on my attempts to please myself, but life that's founded on Jesus. I ask you today for that firm foundation as I trust him in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand with me? In just a moment, after we close in prayer, if you've got a need in your body, if you need healing, or if you just want to come and seek the Lord, the altars will be open. We'll have pastors, deacons, and deaconesses available for you. If you raised your hand or you wish that you would have, would you please come and speak to one of them so that we can speak with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray, and together, with a heart of unity, ask God to help us to be builders of his church, not destroyers. Help us to be builders of his church and not those who don't add anything or build with wood hay and, straw, but those who are building something of eternal value so that people will know Jesus and be able to worship him forever. Heavenly Father, today we come to you and our mission as a church is that your name would be glorified, that we proclaim the good news and that lives would be transformed and we want to build the church in that way and in your power. We ask that you would forgive us for any part that we've played in building in ways that are not healthy and beneficial, in bringing division, in causing strife. Lord, for offenses that we've taken that we should have let go, for unforgiveness that we've harbored. Lord, we ask that you would help us to move forward as a church towards your plans and purposes with the conviction that you've given us what we need for life, for godliness, and for the mission that you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. I ask, Lord, that having the presence of the Holy Spirit among us, we would not neglect the Spirit and think in terms of our own desires, but that we would learn more and more and more to submit to the Spirit and to let Him lead and to guide as we go forward together. We ask, Lord, that You would pour out Your Spirit on us in a renewed way, that You would bring renewal, that You would bring revival, and that You would let us see growth. But, God, the growth we desire is not just in numbers, but God, we desire that lives would be transformed and that people would be built up and equipped to be ministers for your kingdom. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that, and we're entrusting this to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Pastors, deacons are available to pray with you if you have a need for healing. Otherwise, we will see you on Wednesday for our prayer meeting. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.